Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Revival. We're back in revival. We're going to start uh, this week, week three of our revival series. And what we've been doing uh, the first two weeks, we talked about what's required. What, what does it mean to ask for revival? What do we do to kind of like invite God into a place? And then last week, we kind of went through what are the hurdles? What are the big distractions and the things that keep us from experiencing God's revival, both in our individual lives and in our larger community? Today, what we're going to talk about is cultivating a desire, cultivating desire. And so if we know what we're praying for and we know what keeps us from really desiring that right thing, how do we cultivate the right desire that the Bible would um, prescribe for us as we chase the coming alive again that is the revival that the the Holy Spirit brings us? So the questions we're going to be asking is kind of what do you really desire? What's like your true desire? What cheap replacements will you allow into your life? And then um, sort of what's required as you start to pray for revival? So to do that, we're going we're gonna to go into the life of Jesus a little bit and grab a, grab a little thing that Jesus says right as he starts his ministry. So in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. Then Jesus is baptized by John and tempted in the wilderness. You know this part of the story, so we pick it up there as Jesus has come back out of the wilderness. It says, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. So he begins his preaching saying what? Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is arrested. This tip seems to tip a domino in the life of Jesus, that he begins to get to work. He heads to Capernaum, and he starts to preach, and he starts calling disciples. He starts inviting these, these young men to follow him. What does he preach, though? What's like the first thing he's going to say? He, he's in his big moment, his coming out party, his, his first sermon, and the subject of it, the summary of it is, repent. Just means change your life. The first thing he says to the whoever might gather, he says, just change your life. You got to change your life. Heaven has arrived on earth. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, is change your life because heaven is now on earth. Jesus's life was showing us what heaven on earth looked like. And so as you flip through the pages of the gospel, you begin to get one picture after another of what what does it look like for heaven to invade earth? What does it look like for earth to be as it is in heaven? His preaching brings heavenly wisdom to broken souls. His healing, his physical healing, is bringing heavenly fullness to broken bodies. His life brings a heavenly perfection to a world that's been crushed in sin and death. His crucifixion brings heavenly justice upon the sins of the world and for all those who believe. His resurrection offers heavenly life to those who were once dead in sin. And so you, you kind of, as you go through, if you read the life of Jesus through the lens of his first statement as he begins his ministry. Change your life. Heaven is coming. Heaven is here, and it's me. You begin to read, then you begin to see that everything he's doing is sort of a, it's a refraction of that. It's a reflection of that. It's coming out of that first statement. If you're going to change your life, this is what it's going to look like. So he says, I'm bringing heaven to, uh, uh, to earth as a way almost of inviting us into heaven with him right? That's kind of as you walk through the life with Jesus. Jesus keeps inviting people to join him. Hey, we're bringing heaven to earth. Want to follow? 
And some people say yes and then fall away. And some people say yes and they're on it for good. And some people say, ah, it seems like a lot for me. It's almost like Jesus' life is, is a preview for heaven. I don't know why, if you go to the movies, I don't really like going to the movies that much. I miss being, getting old or something and I'm not supposed to like it anymore. The last movie I feel like I saw people say, have you seen this movie? And I said, was it 2003 or before? Because otherwise probably not. Um, but I do enjoy one part of the going to the movies, and that's the trailers. All the previews before, I could leave after all the, the previews are over, I'd be really happy. And maybe it's a short attention span thing, it's like two minutes, that's what it's going to be like, do you want to see it or not? Never mind, you already saw it, they showed you the whole thing in the trailer, and then you can leave. I would go, I'd pay like $2 to just go watch trailers, maybe. <laughs> do you ever go to dinner, and um, maybe you've seen somebody do this, maybe you've done this, if you order a bottle of wine at dinner, if you've seen somebody order a bottle of wine, they do this, um, they do this thing, it's like, this is what it looks like. It's like a trailer to the wine. They bring you the wine, they pour it in the glass, like just a little bit, and then you're supposed to, it's a whole process, you're supposed to swirl it to unleash the aromas, and then you have to put your nose in it and act like you know what you're doing. Oh, it has quite a nose on it, and that's all you have to say, you don't have to name anything. It's got elderberries, I can, you know, whatever. And, and so they bring it and they watch you. First they show you the label, which is the important part, because if you're, if you're like me and the only bottle you've ever ordered is the cheapest bottle on the menu, they're trying to show you to make sure you don't make a mistake is what they're doing. Like, let's make sure you're getting the wine you ordered, but if you order the worst wine, then you don't want to see the label because the only mistake that can happen is a good one for you. But then you smell it, you do the thing, you swirl it, you taste it, you have to do that once or twice, and the waitress or waiter, they're looking at you. They know it's all, it's theater. No one ever sends these back. Unless it tastes like pure gasoline, you're just saying yes, because you don't know what it's supposed to taste like. Anyway, I've never in my life seen someone reject the wine. I've actually, in the last couple of years, I've been asking servers, do people, has anyone ever rejected the wine on you? And one or two have said, yeah, but they rejected everything that came out, so I think they were just trying to make a point. <laughs> but it's a little dance we do. It's, it's wine theater. Jesus' life is a preview of eternity, maybe in that way. God pours a little taste, brings it to the table, and says, just, just take a minute with it. Healing and hope? What about peace? What about joy? Communion with the King of Kings? Laughter at the Passover table? God, is, God presents to us this little preview of what's to come, this little foretaste of, of what life is supposed to be like. To the point that when we get done with the first taste of life with Jesus, we shouldn't go, yeah, I guess it's fine. I don't know what it's supposed to taste like. We should go, yes, pour me a big glass of that. Yeah, I want all of that, whatever you can give me. And, and when, when we begin to experience Jesus, we should want more Jesus. When we begin to taste Jesus, we should want more of that life. Jesus says, I'm, I'm real, and I'm here to bring greater reality to you, a new reality to you. And then his life, as we walk through the Gospels, his, wife, his life is just swirling around, giving us this taste, this picture of what is it like to have earth as it is in heaven. So he chooses disciples, and they quickly get a sense for this, and they sense that maybe change your life, heaven is here, is, is maybe a call to something radically different. And so Pretty quickly, the disciples ask, okay, well, how do we pray? Because you're saying change our life, and we do a lot of things a certain way. So how do we pray? This is a big deal when, when someone would ask how we pray, because Jews were very ritualistic. They prayed the same things at the same time during the same seasons and the same festivals. It was very ritualistic. So even the idea that you would ask, how do we pray, is pretty mind-blowing, because this doesn't need updating. It's already in the law. 
and yet they ask. Jesus then, uh, mind-blowing times two, says, yeah, let me, let me tell you how to pray. So he responds to their question, how do we pray in this new kingdom? Like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So just briefly, I mean, you can read books on this. We can preach for 10 weeks just on that. But just parse out a little bit what's happening. Jesus says to the disciples, he goes, here's how you pray. He says, take, ask God to take care of your needs. Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. <laughs> Supply enough seats is what he said. It's my fault. Parse it out. Take care of our needs so we don't worry about the little stuff, right? That's daily bread. Just take care of my needs for today. We talked last week about lamplight. If you were here, you remember we, this, this little, what's a lamp? And a lamp is this tiny thing that you can barely light your next step. Daily bread and lamplight go together. Give me enough bread that it takes care of my need for today, but doesn't satisfy me so I don't come back to you tomorrow. So when we talk, this is not about wealth today. When we talk about the trap of wealth, the trap of wealth for us, the reason it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the reason that, that Jesus talks like that is because it's easy to become reliant on our wealth instead of relying on God. So give, give us this day our daily bread is simply a way of saying, keep us reliant on you. Give us enough for today. Keep us tethered, keep us connected, keep us in step. Then he says, help us avoid stumbling in sin. Pray for that, absolutely, because life is hard. Maybe even harder, help us forgive when people sin against us. And the main thrust, though, if we boil it down, is God, may you be great. Hallowed be your name. May you be great. You're great. Let's make you greater. Let's shine a light on you. And then may your kingdom agenda be done on earth just like it is in heaven. May your kingdom agenda be done on earth. Bring heaven to earth. That's how you pray. God, bring heaven to earth. God, create heaven on earth. God, revolutionize and reform this place so this place looks more like heaven. Revive our land. Revive us. Bring us back to life with you. How? By bringing heaven, more heaven, more heaven, more heaven. That's how you pray. So what do you pray for? It's not a guilt trip. It's not a trap. What do you pray for? What do you truly desire? Do you pray on earth as it is in heaven? As modern uh, evangelical Protestant Christians, we don't typically pray the Lord's Prayer. It's not a part of our, we've, we're very spontaneous. We like our spontaneous prayer. I want to pray what I want to pray. I would suggest, and this is not a prescription for everybody, but maybe if you're in, in here in Maybe you need to start praying the Lord's Prayer before you pray your prayer. To center on the things that when, when we said, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus said, just like this. And it isn't these words. It's not that. So you go to the church and they say, it's only these words and only this version. No, 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 no. Pray this prayer. Pray these ideas. Pray this agenda. And then get into the thing that's happening in your life, the healing you need or the problems you're having or, or the supplication that's required. Then get into that, but maybe that's what you need today. I think we, whether we pray specifically the Lord's Prayer or not, I think we all pray towards 
earth as it is in heaven. We kind of want that in our own way, in our own language. We're all asking for that. The problem is we run into something called the action-intention gap, illustrated here. That's a really good illustration. This is the action-intention gap. Sometimes in psychology, this is called the value-action gap, but basically this means on the left side, really good intentions, and on the right side, here's what would happen if you followed through with them, and in the middle, it's meh, I don't know, maybe another time. And we don't do the thing we intend to do. Our intentions are, are A, and our actions are B, and the result is we never get to C because we get stuck. You say you want something, you say you value something, Actions reveal something else entirely. So we, how do we pray, and then how do we act? These are two different things for many of us. People overwhelmingly say they want to be healthy. Kale has a really high approval rating in surveys. In supermarkets, not as much. People like the idea of eating healthy, we really want to eat better. I want to have kale. I think it could be delicious. How many people have looked up recipes for how to make it taste better? Because it sort of tastes like some sort of leaf that, you know, I was doing the yard and I accidentally got too close to the bushes and there's this giant, tasteless, slightly bitter, okay. And so you're like, if you just had enough bacon, it's a, right? <laughs> the people who laugh the loudest are people who have added bacon to kale. We want to eat better. We want kale, but really we just sit down and crush a bag of Oreos and we're like, that is what I really want. So the intention is healthier. The action says Oreos. We want earth as it is in heaven, but we've seen every Netflix show on earth. We accept, my point, is cheap replacements. We accept cheap replacements. Like if I want great nutrition, let's say that's kale, a cheap replacement for great nutrition is just something that gets rid of my hunger and my desire for glucose, and that's an Oreo. And so that, it's not like, it's not nothing. It's not, it will satisfy, I guess, my appetite for the next couple hours, but it's not the same. It's a cheap replacement. We want heavenly transcendence. We're up late at night scrolling, looking for the next viral video. We want to see our city changed, promote life with her choice, support women with the nest, care for the poor with habitat, schools and keep watch and LifeWise and BGCA and okay, we, we're into it. We're ready. This year we did something called Spring Into Service. There's probably 400, 450 people that call Covenant Church their home. We do this thing, Spring Into Service. These are all the places we promote. These are all the partners we have. Put it out there. We Facebooked it and Instagrammed it and talked about it up here and sent you emails and all the things. And this is not a guilt trip but it's the action and tension gap. Of the 400 plus people that would call Covenant Church their home, 27 signed up to help our partners. And this is a celebration of those 27 because great things are being done to move missions forward, of people sacrificially serving to see needs met. So that's beautiful. And others didn't sign up for that because they got their own things they're doing with their own partners and their own ministries and their own side. You know, we, we got a community group that's like loving on law enforcement in a way that is really subversive and beautiful. And so we're like, yes, keep doing that. But for many of us, I would say for the majority of us, the action intention gap is real where we want one thing. We say we want one thing, but our actions reveal that we got, don't, maybe don't want earth as it is on heaven quite as much as I think I should want it. We want it with our heads and our hearts, but it doesn't often translate to our hands. 
kale and Oreos. It's the difference between embracing something and embodying something. Embracing something and embodying something. It's easy to embrace an idea. It's hard to embody an idea. Easy to embrace something, hard to... Em- I embrace, I physically, I embrace the idea of needing a strong core. Chiseled abs, strong core, all the things I want to do with an active lifestyle and growing children, I embrace this idea. I tell you this because two weeks ago, I was dusting a side table about this position and I felt a profound tweak in my back because my core was so weak that this was a lot for me. I felt like I'd been stabbed. I immediately stopped. I didn't sit down for three days. Everything was awful. What is happening? I came home. My family said, I'm so sorry. I'm like, sorry that I'm lazy? Is that why you're sorry? Because this could be easily avoidable. I don't know why I'm getting hurt dusting, guys. Some of you are like, he's dusting. Impressive. Others of you are thinking, hurting his back dusting. We're going to a different church. I, I embrace the idea of having a strong core. I clearly have not embodied it because I'm getting hurt dusting. They're different. It's easy to embrace it, but putting the work in is hard. Everybody wants a six-pack, but nobody wants to do the crunches. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We're talking revival, and I've been clear, we can't manufacture revival. You can't conjure it up. But we also say that we want to see our our world upended. We want to see our friends saved. We want to see our church on fire. We want to see our city transformed. We want to see our nation come to Christ. We want all of these things, but we also kind of want an inoffensive sermon and a cheeseburger afterwards. And which one are we really after? Revival is asking for more Jesus. So we pray for revival. We pray for more Jesus here and now. What do you truly desire? More Jesus in your life? Because you read the Gospels in Jesus. When people want more Jesus in their life, life sometimes doesn't get easier. It gets better. I guarantee that. But it doesn't always get easier. How do we get the desires that are in our head or our heart, how do we get those into our hands? How do we learn to love the kingdom and actually embody the kingdom values we long for? I can sum it up in one word. This word is vegetables. Vegetables. How do you get your kids to eat vegetables? We live in a chicken McNugget and mac and cheese culture. We're going to pretend that's just for kids. There's some adults in here that are also living that life. I have a friend who literally, he would describe his diet as a, quote, brown and white diet. And we'd go to lunch, and I'd say, what are you going to have? And he goes, whatever is brown and white. And I'd say, that doesn't make any sense. He goes, yes, it does. Watch this. And then they'd be like, what, what kind of dressing do you want in your salad? He goes, how about sub that for mashed potatoes? And she'd go, oh. And so anything that wasn't brown or white, he just didn't eat because he didn't like vegetables. He wanted meat and carbs. And so he's a brown and white kind of guy. And then he went vegan, which I thought was really interesting. And so we'd go to a restaurant, and did you know French fries are vegan? Okay, depends on the oil, but yeah. And then he would get a vegan bacon cheeseburger, which is like fake bacon, fake meat, fake cheese, but please get rid of all the vegetables. And he, he still, he was a vegan, did brown and white. Why do we do this? Why do we reject vegetables? Why do children reject vegetables is the question. Did you know that you're born, and this is what I understand, scientists can tell me I'm wrong, you're born with all your taste buds that you're ever going to have. 
and you're at the height of their uh, sensitivity when you're born. And so uh, vegetables have a bitter flavor profile, and so for a small child, they taste more of that than you and I taste. There's a reason why as you get older, you end up like, why am I putting so much salt in my food? Why is there so much pepper? Because we taste less. Our taste buds are slowly going away and dulling, and, but as a child, you taste everything. So kids taste the bitterness of vegetables, and they go, not so much for that. They taste the sweetness of fruit, and they go, yes, more of that. Sensitive taste buds, it's a tough sell, so parents begin to punt, and at Costco, you're buying like a barrel of dino nuggets, and you're just going, whatever, it doesn't matter, just get them out of the house, it's fine. So the secret to getting your kids to eat vegetables is out there. Uh, It's proven true in my home, we've seen it work. I'm going to let a PhD tell you what it is, that way you'll believe them and not me. In 2016, in a journal called Advances in Nutrition, Susan L. Johnson wrote this, repeated exposure to novel and rejected familiar foods is the most powerful method to improve acceptance. We needed a PhD to tell us that if you just keep forcing vegetables on your kids, eventually they'll have to eat them. What's true, though, and what proves true to everybody who's done this long enough, is eventually people come to prefer them. As you age into them, it's an acquired taste. Vegetables are an acquired taste, and eventually you come to prefer them. And you almost start to long for them. And then you go to a restaurant, and somebody orders the salad, and that's what they actually wanted. They're not on it. They just like, no, it's delicious. I love the salad. And you go, this is interesting. What's happened? Well, they've acquired the taste for the good things. They've tasted it enough that they go, this is good and I want more. So how do you develop a taste for the kingdom of heaven? Taste it again. Try it again. Taste it again. Try it again. What if it's hard? It's kind of, it's bittersweet sometimes. It's hard. I worked really hard. I had to sacrifice. I got no gratification. That was hard. Taste it again. Taste it again. Taste it again. Have another serving. Taste it again. You only truly love the kingdom of heaven when you live your life for the kingdom of heaven. So if you're here and you go, I don't know if I don't really have the honest truth. I don't know if I have that prayer in my heart to really unearth as is in heaven. I don't know if I say that honestly. I would say the reason you don't say it honestly is because you haven't tasted the fullness of the kingdom of heaven yet. Because once you begin to taste what it really is, you can't help but ask for more of it. Kingdom life is full of hard things, sacrifice and selflessness and serving others. Jesus typifies this. He gave his life to others, and eventually he just gave his life. So we are being honest and saying it can be bittersweet to live the kingdom life at times. It can be hard, but it's a good thing. It's a good life. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Use every sense and experience you have to go deeper with the Lord, and then see if the Lord doesn't want to draw you deeper still. Once you repeatedly taste his goodness, you will learn to prefer his goodness over all the cheap replacements to the point that people who have gone away from, when the kale and Oreo debate, who've gone away from Oreos, they see Oreos and they go, I remember those, I don't want one. I'm lactose intolerant. I'm very intolerant of lactose. I don't, I can't stand it. Don't want it. Doesn't need it around. I'll make lasagna. I'll pay for it later. I don't like lactose. We go to an ice cream shop yesterday. We're out of town visiting uh, relatives. Incredible. Custard. The best. It's so good. There's nine of us. Eight people have it. I don't. And not, I didn't miss it. I didn't, wasn't mad about it. Didn't have my, heart, my feelings hurt. I don't want anything to do with it. Because when I have it, it doesn't go real well. So guess what? I've tasted and I've seen it's a cheap replacement for what I'm really after, which is more fullness. I'm really after more fullness. I'm after joy. I'm after satisfaction. I'm after, I'm after all the things that 
ice cream that, that frozen milk and sugar bring me, I can find those somewhere else because it turns out that it was a cheap replacement for what God really created me for. I'm not anti-ice cream. It's incredible. It just doesn't work with me. And the further I get from having it, the less I want it. Not only because it doesn't go well for me, but because I recognize that it isn't that important to me. And that's a dumb, silly, little observation. It's a little illustration that isn't the actual point, right? What does he say about ice cream? The point is, as you recognize the cheap replacements in your life for the things you're actually created for, you'll learn to see that they don't actually satisfy at all. And when God's really gracious to you, he'll actually make them hurt. He'll actually make them like something you don't want because it doesn't go well for you. The grace of the humiliation of going through hard seasons of life is sometimes we're supposed to see that the hard season of life is caused because we're in something we shouldn't be in. And God releases you from it and goes, that wasn't good for you, try this instead. That wasn't good for you, try me instead. So what's essential to you? Because that's what you'll pray for. When you realize what's really essential, you begin to pray for that, you long for that, you want that. It was raining this morning, perhaps you noticed. I don't ever pray for rain. I never pray for rain. I don't pray against rain, for rain, I don't really care. I, I check it to know if I should have an umbrella. That's about as far as I go. Farmers, they pray for rain or, in seasons, for rain to please stop. Why? It's essential for their well-being. It's essential for their entire life. It's essential for their livelihood. So they care about it. They pray about it in, in a real and earnest way that I never will because it's not essential to my life. The question is, what is essential to your life? Have you gotten to the point where you can recognize what is essential to your very existence? And if you can, if you find that, if you see that in your life, then will you pray for that? Sometimes you can reverse it and be like, whatever you pray for is what you currently think is essential. But until your hands are in the, until the farmer's hands are actually in the soil, until that's their livelihood, they don't pray for rain. But once your hands are in the soil, you can't help but think about it all the time. And maybe that's the kingdom analogy I'm trying to draw, is once your hands are in the soil of the kingdom of heaven, once you begin to work and cultivate desire in the kingdom of heaven, once you activate and you're working in the kingdom of heaven, once you see that, you can't help but want more of the essential business of the kingdom of heaven to get done. Cultivating desires for what is actually essential to life is simply creating hearts that are desperate for Jesus. I've talked to so many people in this room who have gone through deep valleys, valleys I can't imagine. I've walked with you through them. And at the bottom of each of these valleys, the same thing is true. No, no one ever asked me about the weather in these valleys. Nobody cares about little dramas of this and little consumeristic that's. Everybody just goes, I just need Jesus to meet me here. When we go through the valleys of life, we understand what really matters. That's God's gift to us in those valleys, and it's his reminder to us that as we walk through even the good times, don't forget what was essential. Because when you tear everything else away, there's one thing that's left that matters. The presence of Jesus in your life. So crying out for revival is asking for more Jesus in your life, for Jesus to remain central and essential. It's crying out, and it's not passive work. It's not, it's not passive work. We act as if revival maybe is something that if we just kind of wait, maybe God will show up. And it, there's an invitation process happening at the same time. An active participation and knowledge of who God is and what we're actually inviting him to do. I would say that it requires we taste and see God's essential goodness so that we might desire it more than anything else. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, um, you've invaded this place. God, you've shown us what's possible. You've shown us just a glimpse of uh, heaven. Father, we're grateful for Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, for the picture of eternity that he brings, for the taste of goodness on offer. Father, my prayer for our community is that we might taste and see that you are good over and over and over again so that we want nothing less, that we'll accept nothing less, that we'll fight for and long for and pray for you and you alone. God, remove all of the lesser things that we long for. Remove all of the cheap replacements and substitutes that we settle for. Father, sustain us by your goodness and your word and find us wanting Jesus in every aspect of our lives. So God, we ask you to convict us God, to strengthen us, give us endurance. Help us to chase you every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.